name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit they may be truly wise and ever rejoice in your consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. After John had been arrested, Jesus went into Galilee. There he proclaimed the good news from God. The time has come, he said, and the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe the good news. As he was walking along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They too were in their boat, mending their nets. He called them at once, and, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the men he employed, they went after him. So in this week's Gospel, we're by the Sea of Galilee, with Jesus' first disciples, Simon, Andrew, James and John, who are all fishermen. Now, we've not met Simon, Andrew, James or John before, and in fact, in some ways, we've barely got to know Jesus. We're only in the first chapter of Mark, and this passage is at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus, at this point, has just emerged from his 40 days of temptation in the desert, having been driven into the desert by the Holy Spirit after his baptism in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. So we read, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. So that's what happens literally just before the passage we have for this Sunday's Gospel. Jesus reappears after 40 days in the desert, his public ministry begins, and he calls his first disciples. Now what's interesting is that the words and the ideas with which Jesus begins his public ministry echo the words and ideas with which Mark begins his gospel. So in the passage we have for this Sunday's gospel, we read, After John had been arrested, Jesus went into Galilee. There he proclaimed the good news from God. The time has come, he said and the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So, we have John the Baptist's ministry ending, because he's been arrested. We have an announcement of good news, that is, the gospel, and the idea of fulfilment. Now, at the very beginning of his gospel, Mark tells us, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. So again, we've got the good news, the gospel. 
We've got fulfillment because Mark is quoting several Old Testament prophets to show that what the Old Testament prophets predicted has come to pass. And we've also got John the Baptist, the messenger sent ahead of Jesus. Notice as well that at the beginning of Mark, the good news is the good news of Jesus Christ. Later on, it's the good news of God. And this, of course, reveals something very important, that Jesus Christ is himself God. The good news of Jesus and the good news of God are saying the same thing in slightly different words. Jesus is God. And the identity of Jesus, the identity of Jesus as the divine son, is really key to Mark's portrayal of Jesus in his gospel. Because to Mark, the important thing about Jesus is not so much what he does, what he says, what is done to him, but who and what he is. And this is perhaps why over half of the references to Mark in the Catechism of the Catholic Church appear in the first section, the section on the Church's profession of faith. So it's the section on what we believe about who God is and who Jesus Christ is. So that's something to bear in mind as we go a bit deeper into this passage. So where are we? Well, we're in Galilee. We're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Lake of Tiberias. And it's definitely more of a lake than it is a sea. The Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake in modern-day Israel, whose main source is the Jordan River, which is where Jesus was baptised, located in this area called Galilee. Now, Galilee plays an important role in each of the Gospels. In all three synoptic Gospels, not just Mark, but also Matthew and Luke, the Sea of Galilee is the place where the first disciples are called. And all three synoptics mention Jesus teaching and working miracles in Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is also where the Bread of Life discourse takes place in John chapter 6. Now, Galilee was an area inhabited by Jewish people living by the law of Moses, but it was also land shared with Gentile peoples as it was surrounded by Gentile territory. Hence, in the book of Isaiah, it's referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the Nations. So we read in Isaiah chapter 9, In the former time he, that's God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali refer to two of the lost tribes of Israel, tribes who lost their Jewish identity and were subsumed into the surrounding nations. So Galilee is associated with the Gentiles, with non-Jewish cultures and religions, people who are not the people of God. But as we can see, in the book of Isaiah, Galilee also becomes associated with the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah prophesies that God will make glorious Galilee of the nations in the latter time, by which he means the last era of history, the messianic era, the time when God sends his chosen one to bring salvation and vindication to his chosen people, Israel. So Galilee is a place of great significance in salvation history. And Galilee is particularly important in the Gospel of Mark, as it's one of only two geographical settings for what takes place in the Gospel. The other is Jerusalem, the heart of the Jewish faith, the location of the Jerusalem temple. Now, all four Gospels have Jesus moving around, travelling between Galilee and Jerusalem. But only in the Gospel of Mark do you have, very simply, a clear journey from Galilee, the land of the Gentiles, to Jerusalem, the city at the heart of the Jewish faith. There's no mention of other places, as there is in Matthew and Luke, and there aren't multiple journeys to and from Jerusalem, like in John. 
The whole of Mark is this one journey, a journey that begins here in Galilee. So what we've been looking at so far is what we call the literal sense of the passage. And the catechism described the literal sense as being the meaning conveyed by the words of scripture. And so it's the literal sense that gets us an understanding of who's in the passage, where the passage is set, what kind of historical and social context there is for what's going on. That's the literal sense. But there are also three spiritual senses of any passage of scripture. And now we're going to move on to look at those three spiritual senses, using the literal sense as a springboard to understand what God wants to teach us about himself, about ourselves, and about his church, using these words of scripture. So let's turn now to these spiritual senses. We call them the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. Or in other words, where is God in the passage, where is the human person, and where is the church? So we're going to find God in the call to the kingdom that is made through the invitation of the Son. We're going to find the human person created free in the disciples' free response to the, to the divine call. And in the disciples' commission to fish for men, we will find the beginnings of the church, the community of those who belong to Jesus Christ, which is founded on the ministry of these apostles. So let's look first at where we can find God in this passage. We'll begin by looking at this bold statement with which Jesus begins his ministry. The time has come and the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, Mark is keen that we know that Jesus says this after John, that is John the Baptist, has been arrested. John, as we know from earlier on in Mark's gospel, was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. John told his followers that the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Now, the, the fact that Mark explicitly points out that John has left the stage now, that John is no longer practicing his ministry because he's been arrested, is what tells us that Jesus is the one who John was talking about. Jesus is the one more powerful than John who is coming after him. He is now here. So the first thing Jesus tells those listening to him is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, kingdom of God is a phrase used incredibly sparingly in the Old Testament and which becomes prevalent only with the time of the new law, with the coming of Jesus. We see from the letters of Paul, for instance, that it had become a common term in the early church. In the letter to the Romans, Paul tells us the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, we get a few references in the Old Testament to God's sovereignty, to God's kingship over creation as the sole creator of all that is. For instance, in Psalm 97, we read, The Lord is king, let the earth rejoice. And the idea of God's kingship also forms a hope for the future, a hope for the messianic age where God will save his chosen people. In the book of Daniel, for instance, Daniel prophesies that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So the idea of God's kingdom, God's reign on earth, is linked to God's sovereignty over creation and also to the fulfillment of his promises in salvation history. And Jesus is now telling us that the kingdom of God is close at hand. 
And this is where things get interesting, because so far, all that has happened in Jesus' public life is that Jesus has simply appeared on the scene. He's here. And on that basis alone, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this is very telling. It tells us first and foremost that the kingdom of God is linked to the idea that God is now present among us in the person of Jesus Christ. God reigns on earth first and foremost because of the incarnation. Now, this is why, back in the early church, Jesus was referred to by some church fathers as the autobasilea, which is basically Greek for himself the kingdom or the kingdom in person. Jesus is himself the kingdom of God. That is his identity. And as we've seen, Jesus' identity, who Jesus is, is the key emphasis of Mark's teaching in his gospel. And that's the first thing we get in Jesus' public ministry. Not an ethical teaching, not a healing miracle, but a statement about Jesus' identity. Now, the Catechism quotes this passage from Mark when it teaches what the kingdom of God is. We read in paragraph 541 of the Catechism, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. To carry out the will of the Father, Christ inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, the Father's will is to raise up men to share in his own divine life. He does this by gathering men around his son, Jesus Christ. So that's paragraph 541 of the Catechism. And we see it ends by telling us that the Father's will to raise men up and share in his own divine life is achieved by gathering men around his son, Jesus Christ. And in fact, this is the very next thing that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark. The very next thing he does in his public ministry after announcing the kingdom is to call disciples, to gather men around himself. And as we've seen, Jesus finds his first disciples not in Jerusalem, not in the place associated with the law and the prophets, with the presence of God to his chosen people, but instead in Galilee, the Galilee of the nations, out in the open country, in a land associated with the Gentiles, surrounded by people just doing their normal jobs out in their fishing boats. It's a pretty shocking and unsettling way for Jesus to begin his public ministry and begin forming his band of disciples. And it's made particularly shocking and unsettling by the way Mark handles it. Mark's account of the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the calling of the disciples is particularly bare and brief compared to the other Gospels. The Gospel of John, for instance, gives us a bit of a backstory for Simon and Andrew. In John chapter 1, we read, The next day, John, that is John the Baptist, again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So John the Evangelist explains to us that Simon and Andrew had followed John the Baptist and understood that Jesus was the Messiah because John the Baptist had pointed him out. So we've got a bit of a backstory for them. Now Luke also gives us an explanation for why Simon and Andrew would want to follow Jesus. Luke records that Simon, Andrew, James and John have all heard Jesus' teaching and seen him work a miracle. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus commands Simon to put out his nets into the water for a catch of fish. Simon does so, and the catch of fish is enormous. It is miraculous. We read, 
When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. So that's Luke's account. So Luke and John give us a bit of explanation for why Simon, Andrew, James and John would want to follow Jesus. They give us an understanding of what their motivations might be and what their understanding of Jesus is. But Mark gives us none of that. He simply records that Jesus said, follow me, and they did. This is particularly remarkable because at the time, the usual practice in Judaism was for a prospective disciple to seek out a rabbi using their own initiative and attach themselves to that rabbi off the back of their own personal choice. So Mark's account of the calling of the disciples is unusual both in the context of Jewish practice at the time and also unusual in the context of the other Gospels. Now God, as we know from the Catechism, became man as Jesus Christ so that we may know God's love and have a model of holiness. God becomes man in Jesus to reveal himself to us. That's paragraphs 458 and 459 of the Catechism. So what does Jesus' calling of the disciples reveal to us about God? By having such a brief account of the calling of the disciples with remarkably little action or context, Mark yet again puts all the emphasis on the person of Jesus. Mark wants to emphasise that above all, it is who Jesus is. It is the authority that is simply part of his identity as the Son of God that makes people want to follow him. Mark's emphasis is entirely on Jesus' ability to summon people and to command their absolute love and fidelity simply through who he is. And by doing this, Mark teaches something very important about God. In all that we are, in all that we do, in all that happens to us, God's action comes first. Everything we do and say and all that we are is underpinned by God's grace and is a response to that grace. We only seek out God because God has created us with the need to seek him. We only desire God because God has created us with that desire in us. We only act to seek out God because God has given us the ability to act through creating us, sustaining us in existence at every moment. And this is how the Catechism sums all this up. In paragraph 1998, we read, The vocation to eternal life is supernatural. It depends entirely on God's gratuitous initiative, for he alone can reveal and give himself. It surpasses the power of human intellect and will as that of every other creature. So God is the one who calls the human person through his gratuitous initiative into his kingdom, which is brought about on earth through the incarnation of his son. We are called into the kingdom through the invitation of the incarnate Son of God. Now the Catechism picks up on this theme of God's initiative again a couple of paragraphs after the paragraph we've just read, when it says in paragraph 2002, God's free initiative demands man's free response, for God has created man in his image 
by conferring on him, along with freedom, the power to know him and love him. So God has created the human person with freedom, with the power to know and to love him. So what can we learn from this passage about our free and loving response to the call of God? What can we learn about the human person from the example of Simon, Andrew, James and John? In a way, we learn very little. We simply hear that Simon and Andrew at once left their nets and followed him, and that James and John, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the men he employed, went after him. But in another way, the lack of details in this passage helps us to see that the teaching here is timeless and universal. Simon and Andrew are called because we are all called. John and James are called because we are all called. There's no opportunity for us to say, well, I can't relate to this gospel at all. This or that detail is nothing like my life. The specifics are nothing like my life. All of us can identify with the basic facts of being seen by God, known by God, and called by God to follow him, and being able to respond. But there is one important detail we read that's common to all four disciples. Each of them has to leave something behind. Simon and Andrew leave their nets. They leave their most important possession, the thing that is key to their livelihood. How are fishermen meant to survive and meant to support themselves without their nets? James and John leave behind their father Zebedee and the other fishermen whom he employed. They leave their family and their community. How are they meant to cope without the support of their family and their community? As human beings, we are very good at putting our faith and our trust in things that are not God, that are given to us by God, but which are not God. We are good at finding ways to define ourselves and build up an identity through things that have nothing to do with our relationship with God, with our identity as children of God. We say, look at this brilliant career I've built for myself. Look how much other people like me and depend on me. Look at these wonderful possessions I've surrounded myself with. I need these things because they make me who I am. But in fact, responding to God's call means trusting that it is God who makes us who we are. It is God who knows what we need and gives us what we need. And so committing our lives to him means leaving behind the parts of our lives that we've previously depended on and have treated as if they were God himself rather than gifts of God. This renunciation has always been part of the challenge and the joy of following God. Right back at the beginning of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, God says to Abram, who is soon to become Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then in the first book of Kings, Elisha is called to follow the prophet Elijah, the man of God, as a disciple. And Elisha must leave behind his parents and his oxen. We read in chapter 12 of 1 Kings, he, that's Elisha, left the oxen, ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. Then Elijah said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? He returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. Using the equipment from the oxen, he boiled their flesh and gave it to the people and they ate. 
Then he set out and followed Elijah and became his servant. So to follow God's will entails renunciation. But what we gain through our obedience to God's command is far greater than whatever we've given up. As Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We know that these four men, Simon, Andrew, James and John, who have just left behind fishing nets and family, just like Abraham and Elisha before them, will receive far greater blessings in their journey of discipleship. A temporary separation from their earthly father frees James and John to experience the love of their heavenly father poured out on them through Jesus, the son of God. And setting aside their fishing nets enables Simon and Andrew to accept their calling and live out their calling as fishers of men. But what's that phrase, fishers of men? actually mean? Well, the answer to that question gives us a clue as to what this passage can tell us about the church, the community of those who belong to Jesus Christ founded on the ministry of the apostles. Because if we read any further on in Mark, we discover that these four men, Simon, Andrew, James and John, go on to play key roles in Jesus's mission and ministry. In Mark chapter 3, They are first among the men called from the band of disciples to become Jesus's 12 apostles. So we read in Mark 3, he, that's Jesus, went up the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and Andrew. So these four fishermen, including Simon, who is renamed Peter, are the first four names mentioned when Jesus calls his apostles. So what exactly is an apostle? Well, in the original Greek, an apostolos is a messenger, someone sent forth on a mission, sent forth to represent somebody else. And this is what the apostles are. They are the ones whom Jesus sends forth in his name to proclaim the message of the gospel and cast out demons. And out of this ministry that Jesus entrusts to the apostles is born the church, the mystical body of Christ. And the catechism explains exactly what the link is between the apostles 2000 years ago and the church today. So the Catechism tells us that Christ the Lord commanded the apostles to preach the gospel and, in keeping with the Lord's command, the gospel was handed on in two ways. So there are two ways in which the apostles kept Christ's command to preach his gospel. And the Catechism goes on to tell us that those two ways are, firstly, the spoken word of their preaching by the example they gave by the institutions they established. And that all sums up the tradition of the church. That's the tradition of the church. And then secondly, they passed on the message of the gospel in writing. And that's the scriptures. So from the apostles commissioned by Christ, we receive the message of the gospel, 
the message of Jesus Christ, we receive it through these two modes, the tradition of the church and the scriptures. And then that responsibility given to the apostles to safeguard and transmit the message of the gospel as contained in the tradition and the scriptures is handed on to the apostles' successors, the bishops. We go on to read in the Catechism, in order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors. So there we go. Thanks to the ministry of the apostles, we receive the message of the gospel through the tradition and the scriptures, safeguarded and passed on by the bishops of the church. So what on earth has that got to do with the idea of being fishers of men? What does fishers of men mean? Well, there's only one mention of fishing for men in the whole of the Old Testament that might help us understand. And that's in Jeremiah chapter 16. And there God promises Jeremiah, I will bring them back to their own land that I gave their ancestors. I am now sending for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall catch them. Now by them, God means the people of Israel. And so this image of fishers of men is linked to the fulfilment of God's promises the fulfilment of God's promise to bring the people of Israel back to the land which he promised them, the joyous return of the people of Israel from the darkness and suffering of exile, the return of the chosen people to the land promised to them by God is a foretaste of God bringing us into the land of the heavenly Jerusalem, into heaven, out of the exile of sin and death. So the fishermen of God are those who help bring about God's plan to save humanity and bring humanity into the joy of the heavenly homeland. And this plan of salvation is ultimately fulfilled, of course, in the coming of Jesus Christ, which heralds the beginning of God's kingdom on earth. And so Jesus, the Son of God, calls his own fishers of men to share in that same mission. He calls the disciples, whom he will make apostles, and in doing so, he also calls the bishops who are to be the apostles' successors. In other words, he entrusts this mission to the church. The church, founded on the apostles, is the community of the fishers of men. And even if we are not bishops or priests, we still share, through our identity as baptised Christians, through that grace of our baptism, in the mission of the church to bring all humanity to know Jesus and to become part of the kingdom of God. So being a disciple of Jesus, having a personal relationship with Jesus, isn't just something that changes our hearts and our inner lives. It changes the world around us through the mission that is entrusted to us. Through our baptism, we have answered Jesus' call to follow me, and we are part of a community which has received a divine command to let those around us our friends, our colleagues, our family, know about the good news of Jesus Christ and to help them grow closer to him and his saving grace. Now, this Sunday is particularly interesting because it's the Sunday of the Word of God. Pope Francis instituted the Sunday of the Word of God back in 2019 and the first one took place last year, the third Sunday of Ordinary Time back in January 2020. And the Sunday of the Word of God is a Sunday on which the Pope has asked us to reflect on the great treasures of Scripture, which he describes as 
that constant dialogue between the Lord and his people. So Pope Francis really wants us to rejoice in the fact that God is constantly speaking to us through the scriptures, constantly calling us to get to know him better through the scriptures. And so as we reflect on this gospel and reflect on the call of the disciples to become fishers of men, we can pay particularly close attention to the way in which reading the scriptures can aid us in our journey of discipleship. We can think about the ways in which the scriptures, the word of God as transmitted in the written word, bring us closer to Christ. Where do we personally hear the call of Jesus in the scriptures? Where do we hear the call to repent, to turn away from our old lives, our old selves, and follow him? And also, what parts of the scriptures might particularly speak to the people around us who we know are struggling, who are suffering, or who live without faith and hope in Jesus? How can we make use of the scriptures to help bring them closer to Jesus Christ, to fulfil our calling, to assist in the church's mission, to be fishers of men? So that's our gospel for this Sunday, the Sunday of the Word of God. And in it, we found God in the call to the kingdom that is made through the invitation of the Son. We found the human person created free in the disciples' free response to the divine call. And in the disciples' commission to fish for men, we found the beginnings of the church, the community of those who belong to Christ, founded on the ministry of the apostles.